Parenting is one of those jobs in which you have to, from time to time, offer correction. Can I get an amen from the parents in the house? You have to offer direction, guidance, reproval even, punishment when it's necessary in order to correct behavior, uh, in order to direct the little children under your care into productive members of society. And of course, in the Christian world, we want to produce them, help them find their way to be productive and faithful members of the body of Jesus Christ and followers of Jesus. And as such, we have to offer correction from time to time. We have to point out wrong behavior, celebrate good behavior, parse out the difference, and point in the right direction. But sometimes we can communicate the right thing in the wrong way. Now this happens in a lot of different interpersonal relationships besides just parent and child. But I think parent and child, at least for me, is the one that's most readily comes to mind. I'll give you three guesses why. That's the most, it's Corbin, Cannon, and Kai, in case you're wondering. That's the reason why that comes to mind quite quickly. We have to offer correction because sometimes we say the right words. Hey, don't do that or do this instead of that or here's why you shouldn't do that. But we don't say it as calmly as I'm saying it to you right now. Comes out at a little bit higher volume. Again, I know none of you parented in this way. I'm sure that here at First Baptist Church Grandview, we are full of people who parent 100% correctly all of the time. Uh, and that we should, people should write a book about how awesome our parenting is in Grandview. Or perhaps you're normal and you've raised your voice at your kids before. Anybody else want to identify with that? Confess to the Lord here before you, God, and everybody. The first part to getting past something is confessing it. Uh, and so you just did that together. Some of you right next to your children. It happens sometimes, doesn't it? We say the right thing. We just communicate it in the wrong way. And suddenly, you know that point, like... There's a point where like maybe you get a little too loud and you're like, ah, I shouldn't have done that. But there's the point where you get way too loud. Or you say something mean, right? Now, I can get there easily because I have a natural high voice. Not like, I'm not a high talker. I don't mean high pitched. I mean, like I can, my volume can get high quickly without me thinking about it. Um, if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you know that to be the case. You've seen it on a weekly basis. Uh, and I can get to the point where it's gone too far where now the point I was trying to make is undone, right? Where I have done more damage than the damage I was trying to correct. And at that point, I as a parent am forced, I feel like I have to anyway, I have to stop, back up, and apologize for what I did wrong instead of focusing on what was done wrong that I'm trying to correct, right? Maybe you can identify with that, maybe not. Again, maybe you're a perfect parent, but if you're not, you understand what it's like to say the right thing, but communicate it in the wrong way, and then end up being wrong even when you were right. And then you get really frustrated about that, don't you? And it just turns into this whole thing. But we can be wrong even when we're right. You know, our culture, by and large, is obsessed with being right in all arenas of our culture. Pop culture, power, church, social media. People expend a great deal of energy defending their rightness above all else. Think about the last argument or passionate disagreement, whatever you want to call it, with someone that you had recently, ask yourself to look back at yourself and think about yourself and ask, was I more interested in the truth or in being right? 
Because we know that point. You get to that point in an argument, it's usually with a, a loved one, a, a spouse or a child or something like that. You get to the point where you, you don't even remember what's right and what's wrong. You just want to win the argument. Have you got to that point where you recognize our depravity and our sinfulness within us when we get to that point and that even when we're right we can be wrong even when we're pursuing truth we can sometimes end up taking a, a, a diversion and going this direction and pursuing our own version of the truth whatever that is instead of what actually matters and we can undo the good that we were trying to do we can be wrong even when we're right because without love we are wrong even when we're right we don't communicate love first Everything else we have to say is immediately cast into question. Remember that this book we're about to read from, Revelation, is a book written for all of the church, not just a particular congregation. In chapters 2 and 3, which we'll spend the next several weeks in, John addresses seven particular churches. We've talked about this. Particular churches throughout Asia Minor. And while he is speaking to those particular congregations, he is also speaking to the church as a whole. It's the reason why he picked seven Jesus has a message for the whole church, seven signifying in the Greek language the complete version of the church. All of us, throughout time and space, John, Jesus, through John, his messenger, has this word to say to his church. And so as we read the letter to the church in Ephesus, and Smyrna, Pergamum, and so on, be thinking about what this means for us today, how we too can learn from this reality that without love, we're wrong, even when we're right. You know, it's interesting to me, and important to note that when Jesus sets out to give this letter to his churches, this letter that contains correction and direction, that he starts with the church when he gives letter, words of conviction and words of correction. Jesus was delivering this letter, or Jesus through his messenger John, was delivering this letter to a church that was undergoing severe persecution in a godless Roman culture. They were dealing with all sorts of of, of punishments, all sorts of uncomfortableness, all sorts of, of, of vileness, of depravity going on in the world around them, brought on by a godless Roman culture. And yet, even though they are surrounded by such godlessness, God's first word to them is not one against the world, against the culture, but it's for the church and how the church ought to behave in the midst of a godless culture. We too, surprise, surprise, live in a godless world in an increasingly godless culture. Scholars will tell you, New Testament scholars will tell you that the Western world is looking more and more like the first century world in which Jesus walked, in which Paul taught, in which John himself is now writing. That our world looks more and more like that first century Roman world than it has maybe since then. It is a, in many ways, godless culture. And we face a godless culture through many different issues. There are many different issues that need to be addressed, and rightly so, but today, God's message is for the church and how we ought to respond, not how we ought to call the world to respond, that's part of it, but first, how we ought to respond to living in this world, in this culture, at this time. And so as we read Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the letter to the church in Ephesus, may you hear what God has to say to his church today. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, we once again thank you for your spirit here this morning, for your presence. God, we thank you for your good, holy, and perfect word. God, I pray now that you would give us the gift of understanding. God, give me the gift of communicating 
so that we might hear and see what it is your word has to speak into our lives this morning. God, may you push away the enemy. God, may you push away distraction. God, may you push away the chaos of a busy week. And God, may you help us to focus solely on what you have to speak to us this morning and nothing else. God, your word tells us that when your word goes out, it does not come back void. May your word do what it's always done, and may you do a work of transformation within us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. John sets up a basic motif that will go for this church and the next six churches. Of, of, of God's way, Jesus' way of speaking a particular message to each of these congregations and to us today as the extension of the church as a whole. And it usually starts with, to the angel of the church in such and such. And such. In this case, it's Ephesus. Uh, the angel, we know, is representative of the stars that Jesus holds in his right hand and the vision that we saw at the end of chapter 1. Also the vision that here at the beginning of chapter 2 where God is called the one who has the seven stars in his hand. The angel could be, some believe, an actual person who is a messenger. That's what the Greek word angel means, is a messenger. But more than likely, especially with the heavenly vision in chapter 1, this is some divine being uh, who is sent to give the message, this particular message, to protect the word, to protect the message, and deliver it to the church in Ephesus, and then onward from there. Now, there was probably an actual person that took John's letter from Patmos to all of the churches in Asia Minor, but there is a divine aspect to it as well, almost like a divine counterpart to the church. This angelic being, this angelic uh, creature taking this message and making sure that it's delivered where it's supposed to go. It just shows the nature of the message. It shows the urgency of the message. And not only that, us being reminded that Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his hands, which again, chapter 1 says those seven stars are the angels, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which chapter 1 tells us that those golden lampstands are the churches, is a way of John signifying to the church at Ephesus, hey, pay attention. This word is from God. This is an urgent word directly from Christ himself. You need to listen to what Jesus says to the churches. That's why at the end of all of these, it'll say, you know, the one who listens, you can overcome and change and things will go good for you. We are to listen to what Jesus has to say to the churches. Ephesus itself was an important city. Probably the most important, from a worldly perspective, of the seven that are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. It was probably at this time about a quarter of a million people that lived there, which doesn't sound huge by today's standards, but was extremely big according to first century standards. Not only that, it was basically the gate to all of Asia Minor. 
If a Roman were to travel from the Roman mainland across the Mediterranean Sea into Turkey, modern-day Asia Minor, they would have stopped at the port of Ephesus on their way into the rest of the towns, somewhere where everyone went through. It had the temple of Artemis there, which is one of the seven wonders, ancient wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it was a very Roman city. Um, it was a very wealthy city. It was an important city. It was probably a culturally and religiously diverse city. It probably also had its fair share of Roman depravity within it. And so because of it being such a hodgepodge, melting pot, whatever you want to call it, because of all the different teachings that were going on in Ephesus, and because it was a very, again, cultural place, not in the best sense of the word, we know that being right was important. It was important to teach truth. It was important to stand up for the correct way of doing things, to stand up for the godly way of doing things. In a world where there was so much godlessness, there needed to be a group of people who were holy and set apart that showed people that there was a better way. Ephesus was, again, much like we are today, culturally diverse and full of its own kind of depravity and in need of someone to bring right teaching. And this is one of the things the Ephesians did well the Ephesian Christians. As Jesus, through John, is articulating what they do well, he says to the Ephesian church, you cannot bear evil. You find false teachers out, those who say they are apostles and are not. You identify them and you, 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 you uncover them and you fix their heresy. You get their false teaching out of the church. This is good. Not only that, he points out a particular sect that's, having, that's causing problems. He mentioned them again, and uh, he'll mention them again later in this chapter to another church, the Nicolaitans, and how the Ephesians hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Um, there's a lot of conjecture over what that teaching might be. We're not totally for sure, but what we do know is that it was very antithetical to who the Christians were probably had something to do with the, the, the cultural milieu that they were in, that they were trying to pull Christians away from right behavior into all sorts of depravity and evil things. And he's saying it's, it's good that you are against these people. You need, not these people, you hate their teaching is actually the way that it's communicated. It is good that you are against their teaching. In other words, in a godless culture, defending truth matters. It's important for us to defend the truth and to defend what is right, to point out false teaching when it exists and to point people in the right direction, to have faith in the right things and the things that last, that are a strong foundation. It is good and it is a good way of living to live in a godly way in a godless culture and point to truth even when no one else does. What we would call orthodoxy, which is just right belief, is important and it remains to be important today it's one of the reasons why we as people of faith from time to time articulate what we believe and things like creeds or confessions in the baptist tradition we would call it a confession that we would make you don't have to sign on to be a part of of, of being in, in a baptist church but it's just basically what most baptists believe to be true um we, we produce those ever so often to make sure that we're, we all kind of understand we're on the same page, what we believe about God, what we believe about Scripture, what we believe about uh, uh, the world and marriage and family and all the different things that we believe. We make it a point to say those things on occasion so that we can combat falsehood and stand up for truth. It is good to defend truth in any culture, particularly a godless culture. We're going to see some of that some of John's or Jesus's correction to the other churches, pushing them to stand up for truth more often as we move along through looking at these seven churches. But 
moving on with the church in Ephesus. Although they do those things well, what they don't do well is this. They have lost that which they loved first. They have lost their first love, you might say. Now, what in the world does that mean? Lost our first love. All of us had a crush and lost it, most likely. You know, at some point when we were a child, we had a first love that didn't last. Now, it's, it's deeper than that. It's more important than that. Our first love. Is John, <coughs> excuse me, is John talking about our love of God? The loving relationship we might have with God? The, the, the personal nature of our faith? Or is he talking about the way that we love one another? Love between brothers and sisters in Christ. The way that we treat those who call themselves a part of the same family of God that we say that we belong to. Or is John talking about other people? Those who are outside the faith. Those who don't identify as Christians. The rest of the world. My contention would be this. That where one of those three things are, the others are as well. Where there is love of God, there is love of our brothers and sisters of Christ. Where there is love of God, there is love for all people, regardless of what they believe to be true about Jesus or not. Love of God, love of each other, love towards others. Where one of those things are, the other two exist as well. So it's all of the above that perhaps the Ephesians have lost. Now, we all know, I think, I know anyway, what it's like to struggle with all of these what it's like to struggle with my personal relationship with God. Because we would like to believe that at all times we are going to feel the high of the Spirit like we did when we were first saved, right? Remember, I, I got saved at a church camp when I was 15 years old. And it was not only a spiritual awakening kind of experience, it was also an emotional experience. So emotional and spiritual was it that there were physical manifestations, meaning literal chills running up and down my spine in that moment that I sometimes still feel on occasion in what I would call a very emotional worship experience. A good emotion, but an emotional worship experience. I still feel that reality. And I think there's something within all of us that have felt that kind of thing before that say to ourselves, I wish it was that way all of the time, right? I wish it was that way all of the time. Or think about human relationships. When you first were falling in love with your spouse, don't you wish you could create or capture that, 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 that kind of young love, kind of uh, where, where everything was novel and new and fresh, and you could capture that and you could repeat it over and over and over and over and over again. Instead of looking at somebody that you've known for 30 years and thinking, man, I wish this guy would do something else, you know? Uh, or I wish he'd get up and try something new. You know, we wish, we wish that that same, like, feeling of novelty would just go on and on and on. And we'd always have those chills running up and down our spines. But that's not the nature of our relationship with Jesus, is it? Nor is it the nature of our relationship with each other. I would contend that there's something about faithfulness that is more beautiful than novelty. I, I would contend that there is something about an old couple who can stare at each other across the dinner table and not say anything for an hour and nobody get bothered about it, but just share a meal together in loving silence that is beautiful. In our culture, we kind of put that out there as, oh, they don't have anything to say to each other. You know, they must not really love each other. Maybe they've just said everything they need to say, right? And they don't have anything new to say because they can literally be in that person's presence and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are loved. You don't have to tell me. You can if you want to. But I know that you love me because you've been here for 70 years. And not just been here for 70 years, you've sacrificed for me for 70 years. 
you've told me you've loved me for 70 years. You've done for me for 70 years. So next time you see an old couple at a restaurant being quiet, don't look down on them like they don't have anything to say. Instead, see that as hashtag couple goals that maybe you can strive to reach someday, that you can share that kind of depth of relationship where you don't have to fill every waking second with words. That's spoken like an introvert, I know. But... That kind of novelty is something we all long for, but it's not necessarily what we experience. And so we go through these seasons in life where Christ feels quiet or distant. Maybe in that moment we feel like we've lost our first love. Maybe you know what it's like to identify with that. I would ask you, are you nurturing your first love, if that's the case? Are you taking time to sit and listen and again, God might not have, might not speak in the same way to you that he did 20 years ago, but he still speaks. He's still active. Are you listening to hear what that quiet voice might have to say? A life of love starts with a personal relationship with Jesus. And if you're not personally experiencing the love of Christ, religious obedience becomes life-draining legalism. Going through the motions doing what you're supposed to do because you're supposed to do it. Because that's what everybody expects around you and that's what you've always been told that you have to do. If you're doing all of those things, which can be wonderful things on their own, but if you are doing them without a loving personal relationship with Christ, you will drown in cynicism and legalism and you will find yourself burning out and walking away from the faith if you are not careful. Because our faith starts not with right doing, but our faith starts with the one who loved us first, with a loving relationship. The right doing comes after that. If you're not personally experiencing the love of Christ, religious obedience can be life-draining legalism. We can also understand what it's like to lose our first love in relationships with other believers. Church would be easy if it weren't for all those Christians, right? Can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> Nobody's laughing because it's way too true. I'm stepping on toes. Nobody wants to laugh because you're afraid somebody might think you're laughing about them, right? Being in church is like being in any other relationship. Sometimes it's difficult. Can I please get an amen so that I'm not alone on this one? Can, you, we, can we admit this reality instead of pretending like it doesn't exist, right? Being in a family is sometimes hard. Right? Sometimes you may not want to go to the family reunion because of that little tiff you had with a, your cousin or your sister or your mom or your dad uh, a couple of months ago. And sometimes being around Christians can be just as difficult because guess what? We're people, we're fallen people, we make mistakes, and we can understand what it's like to get on each other's nerves because it happens. And so we can ask ourselves, have we gotten to the point to where we're so cynical about the church? Because that's really in flavor today, isn't it? Oh, the church are just a bunch of hypocrites. Oh, the church, they're just a bunch of blah, 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 blah. People who don't really care. People who don't really mean what they say. People who are just out for their own good. People who are just out to sermonize and judge other people. We can paint all those things about the church because that's really in vogue today to kind of uh, just poo-poo on the church like that and say, you're over here, you're, you're done, I'm done with you, I'm going to go do my own thing, I'm going to deconstruct my faith, and I'm going to reconstruct it as some singularity where I can go do what I want to and not be a part of any faith congregation because it's just me and Jesus and that's all that matters. Yeah, lot of that. I've heard the story before, it's existed from the beginning of time, okay? But the reality is the church is the bride of Christ. 
So let's be careful about who you're talking about, first of all. Second, the church is full of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. People who have experienced the same grace that you have. People who have been forgiven of sins, some of which weren't as bad as yours from a worldly standard. But people who have been forgiven of all of their sin, just like you have by the grace of Jesus Christ. John said in another place, in the epistle with his name on it, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What does that mean? That means we are the images of God, are we not? You've seen the image of God in the face of your brother or sister in Christ. If you hate that individual, please don't tell us that you love God. Love towards our brothers and sisters can be hard. And love towards others from the outside can be hard. This one I, I don't understand as well as I do the others. I'll just be perfectly honest. This is one of the frustrations I've had with the church. Here I go, bad-mouthing the church. But this is one of the frustrations I've had with the church from the time I really began to feel called into ministry is I don't understand why we think that non-Christians should behave like anything other than non-Christians. Why should we think that people who would completely disavow the lordship of Jesus Christ should live in such a way that Jesus was their Lord? I mean, really, do you live according to the prospects of the teachings of Allah? No, because you don't follow him. So why would anybody out there in the world who says that Jesus is not real, why should we expect them to live according to the teachings of someone they don't even believe in? We need to stop being surprised when the world is worldly. We need to stop being surprised when non-Christians act in non-Christian ways. We need to stop being surprised when people say who this is a fantasy, don't abide by its teachings. It's time to stop acting offended and surprised every time a non-Christian does something wrong. That's what they do. Now, what should really bother us is when the people who do claim that this thing is true violate it. That should be a little bit more troubling, uh, is that the people who do claim to follow Jesus as Lord completely rebuke him with their lifestyle. That should be something that we're a little more concerned about, but we should expect non-Christians to act like Christians because those people are created in God's image too. And if we don't love them first, we are missing the point entirely. Entirely are we missing the point. This is how John says, or Jesus says through John, that the church in Ephesus and we too should respond. When he points this out, he says, hey, here's the problem, okay? You, you believe the right things. You stand up against the right things, but you lost your first love. You've lost the importance and the primacy of love in this whole thing. So here's what you need to do instead. You need to repent. Go back to what you used to do. It's pretty much that simple. Remember who you were. Remember who you are. Remember the things that you used to do. Repent and go back to doing those things again. For us today, the church of Jesus Christ needs to repent from loving rightness more than people. The meaning of repentance, what does that mean? It means to turn around and go back, to do an about face, to do a 180 and head the other direction. That's what the church of Jesus Christ needs to do today. Where we have put rightness above people, we need to repent and turn back and remember our first love. Because many in the world today, many in the church today will tell you that we are in a war. 
and they will define it as a cultural war. And indeed, there currently seems to be some cultural battles going on around us. But I want to tell you a little bit more of an important war that's going on. And that is the war for the soul of humanity. That is the war for the soul of your neighbors, of your co-workers, of strangers in the street, for their very soul and eternity. That's the war that we ought to care about. Scripture tells us quite plainly that our war is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, but it is against powers and principalities. It is against spiritual forces against which we battle, not flesh and blood. So stop believing... <coughs> talking heads on television. Stop believing the, the voice of the enemy. Stop believing your own flesh when it says that the people we ought to worry about most are people. And instead, understand that the battle is going on somewhere else for the heart of someone you think is your enemy. I mean, that's the thing about God, isn't it? He sent Jesus to save people who had made themselves his enemy. Romans 5, even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That's what God is about. That's what Jesus is about. It's about dying even for the ungodly so that they might have a chance to believe. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. We are fighting a spiritual battle. So get back to the basics, the great commandment to love God and to love people. If we're not showing love first, we have no business defending the truth. Our defense of the truth is impotent if we are not showing love first. We need to stop it. We damage the truth if we defend the truth without first showing love. And Jesus takes this very seriously. How do I know he takes it seriously? Listen to the warning that he gives the church in Ephesus. Basically, he says, if you don't stop, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. Now, if you're just reading without paying close attention, you're like, okay, they lost their lampstand. Remember what the lampstand is in chapter one. The lampstands are the churches. And so what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus is, if this is something you continue in, yeah, you're doing all those things right. But if you continue to forget your first love, I will remove your very identity as a church of Jesus Christ. You will cease to be a church. If the church does not love, it ceases to be the church. And it becomes an overrated social club that people belong to for a sense of social duty, fellowship, and, 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 and position within the, the, the power structures of the world, not for the sake of loving Christ and loving people. The single most important characteristic of the church is that it exudes the love of Jesus Christ. I know preachers are prone to overstatement. Let me tell you scripturally why that's not an overstatement. Jesus was asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? His response, love God with your whole heart, with everything that you have. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The last night that Jesus was together with his disciples in the upper room, he said many things to them, but one thing he said to them was, I come to give you a new commandment that you love one another. John said it in his own epistle, that if you say you love your brother, but, or you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar. Elsewhere, he says, if you don't love your brother, then the love of God is not in you. We can go back to the Old Testament to find the idea of loving others just as we love ourselves. 
It is not some new reality. God, Christ presented it as a new commandment because he taught it in a completely new way. He showed them a new way of living out that commandment, a way that they had never seen before, the kind of sacrifice and servanthood that he was willing to put on display. That is at the essence of what it means to follow Jesus, to love God and to love people. And if we are spending the majority of our time on anything else, we need to, just as Jesus called the church in Ephesus, repent. Return to the way we used to love and do those things again. And if we do, if we do change, ah, oh, there's a pretty good promise at the end of, uh, of this passage. If they do change, they will be granted to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a pretty obvious reference to heaven. But it's also a reminder that they will go from having their place as a church of Jesus threatened. I'll take your lampstand away. Having that place threatened to being reminded that they will have that place for eternity with Jesus. To be an eternal part of his church. So let's bring it home to us today. Are you more worried about being right on certain issues than you are communicating the love of Jesus. If you are, again, the direction is clear. Repent. Return to who you know you are and go back to the basics of loving God and others. I'll give you a few examples of encountering people in the world and see if you would love first before you did anything else. Imagine that you happened upon a starving eight-year-old child stealing bread from one of our local grocery stores, what would your response be? Well, here we go, situational ethics, right? But seriously, what would your response be? Would your response be to knowing that the child was starving, slap his hand, say terrible things to him, scream at him, call him a criminal, and kick him out of the store? Or would your response be to look the other way, to let him go? You know, Scripture actually teaches us that maybe there's a third way Maybe you could pay for the food and give it to him to make justice happen as well. Maybe you could even pay for the food and then take him aside and say, hey, there's a better way. Like, let me show you people who can help you. You can stand up for both justice and truth. What a novel idea. You know, our world lies to us that says you have to be on one extreme or the other. You have to just give in every time or you have to be super judgmental. Why can't we walk the line of being both graceful and truthful? Why can't we walk the fine line of being both loving and just. Why are we not called to that? And so that one's easy, right? An eight-year-old, let's, let's make it personal. That, that, that habit that you've been trying to create in your life for the last, like, 20 years, that every time you start it, you just, you know, you fall off the wagon. Man, do you, how do you talk to yourself in that moment? Or maybe that habit you've been trying to break for the last 50 years, that you can't seem to get rid of, and every time you fail, how do you talk when you fall off the wagon again? Are you, you talk, oh, you're, man, you're, you're such a loser. You're never going to fix this. Maybe you have a voice in your head from your past who tells you that kind of thing. Is that what you do? Or, 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 or do you go to the other side and be like, ah, you know, no big deal. Uh, you know, you can fix that eventually. Or do you walk the middle way and say, man, you, you messed up. Okay, but we can do this. Forget what the world around us says. Forget what the voice in your head says. You can do this and you can move forward together. Okay, now let's, let's amp it up a little bit. And let's talk about something that maybe make, might make some of us uneasy 
upon first reading, but I want to dive in here, not to pick at things, but to really ask ourselves what we believe about love and loving first. Imagine you have a cousin or a niece that's a college student, freshman, a 19-year-old, a 19-year-old who makes some bad choices from time to time and goes to a party that they shouldn't have gone to, doesn't remember what happened, and in a few weeks finds out they're pregnant. And their response to that is to go to an abortion clinic. How do we love first in that moment? Because we believe, we have a teaching, and we believe in the promise of the value of human life in the church for a good reason. We believe that we ought to protect the unborn for a good reason. And we would never disavow that truth. We would never stop doing everything we can in the public square to fight for what's right. But what about that girl? Does she deserve to be a casualty of a battle that she doesn't even know she's fighting? Or is there a way for us as the church of Jesus Christ to come alongside her and say, man, I'm sorry you were in this position. I'm sorry that this happened to you. I don't agree with the, the choice that you made, and, and, and I want to make sure I can walk alongside you to make sure that this doesn't happen again. But do you know what? Child of God, Jesus loves you, and he died for you, and he knew you were going to abort that baby, but he died for you anyway. Come on, folks. Is that not something about which we can rejoice? That our God is a God who forgives even what the church would say is some of the most despicable sins ever? If you have problems believing that God can save a murderer on death row but can't save a girl who had an abortion, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because there is something wrong with a theology that is willing to put a 19-year-old girl and give her, not give her the grace that you would give a 50-year-old man serving a life sentence because he committed a crime 30 years ago. Because they both ought to have grace. They both ought to have love. And there is a way for us. Don't buy into the lie of the world that says you have to be all truth or all lovey-dovey. Know that there is love and truth. There is love and justice in the path of Jesus Christ. That you can stand up for the things that are right, but you can do so in a way that is loving and that never excludes anybody, no matter what choice they may have made. Oh my goodness, I'm glad that God is one who forgives sin. I'm glad that God is one who forgives habitual sin. I'm glad that God is one who lets gluttons into heaven. I'm, God, I'm glad that God is one who lets sinners into heaven, not because of their sin, not because of their victory over their sin, but because of his victory in a cross-shaped form for all eternity over their sin. Can I get an amen on that one? And that's what it looks like to love first. Is it easy? Mm -mm. Is it our first reaction? Heck no. But is it what we are called to? Absolutely. This is the kind of love that we are called to exude. So as a thought exercise, both now and the rest of the day or the week, I want you to imagine someone who is diametrically opposed in their worldview from you. You know, like in the Superman comics when there's Bizarro Superman who lives in an alternate universe. Uh, he's evil. You know what I'm talking about? Like he's the exact opposite of Superman. Imagine that person exists for you. Like your exact, like your evil double, your evil twin. 
or maybe you're the evil twin. Not just playing. But imagine that like your evil twin exists somewhere in the world that like whoever you voted for, they voted for the other person. Whatever you feel about the pandemic, they feel the exact opposite. Uh, whatever you feel about Israel, they feel the exact opposite. All the big political hot topic, big button issues. Uh, you know, imagine that it's someone that's your exact opposite. Imagine meeting that person. Could you love them first? What's more important to you? Being right or loving like Jesus? You can be both. But it starts every time with love. Rightness is a conversation that has to happen. Because once someone is in the family of God, that's a conversation. You see correction and you lovingly bring to their attention what is good and what is right and what is holy. Not to, to, to condemn them, but to bring them away from the bad effects of sin. That's what loving correction looks like, just like I would with my children. But it starts with love first. During our time of invitation this morning, imagine your evil twin. Did you love that person first? If there's anybody here who does not know Jesus as Savior, I would love to talk to you about what it means to be forgiven, to be loved by him in a way that's unlike any other love you'll ever experience. I'll be down here at the front. You can come and talk to me then, or we can hang around afterwards and talk. I'll be around here at the front after the service. If you're joining us online and you want to talk to somebody, just message us on Facebook and somebody will reach out. For those of you who do follow Jesus as Savior, you still have your first love? personally with Jesus? Are you nurturing that relationship? You still have your first love with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is there an issue that needs to be addressed? Do you still have your love for the world that Christ died for, regardless of it being his enemy? Think and pray on these things. How can we show love first? Let's stand. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to lead us in a couple more songs. And as they do, would you just move in whatever way God calls you to? Father, you are good. <clears throat> you are just. And you are loving. God, when I think about my own sin, my own depravity, I cry out with the psalmist. What is man that you're mindful of? Why would you think of me to save me? And yet, God, you loved me while I was your enemy. You died for me while I was a sinner. God, may you show us how to love that same way. May you show us how to love ourselves, how to love others, how to love you, how to love the lost in the same way that you loved us. God, may we be a beacon of love before we are anything else. I ask that in Jesus' name.